Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Camaro, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon, and I can't even tell you how special this one is tonight for me. You know, regular fans of this show and of my blog know that I've been watching One Life to Live for the past 23 years. In terms of soaps, that has been my show. And ABC's recent announcement that the show will be ending later this year has left me and, you know, no doubt millions of other fans absolutely devastated. I've already dedicated quite a measure of time in the two-year history of this show bringing you exclusive chats with many people who have been involved and associated with One Life over the years. Bob Krimmer, uh, Jessica Tuck, Kale Brown, the great Linda Dano, Brett Claywell. And my plan is, at least my sincere hope is, uh, to step that game up considerably over the next few months as we progress toward the show's finale in the, the hopes of creating something of a living, breathing oral history of One Life for its many fans to enjoy and appreciate. And my first step toward making that happen unfurls tonight with my terrific guest, you know, you may not recognize the name Susan Betzel Horgan on first glance, but if, as millions of us were, if you were glued to One Life to Live in the mid-90s, there's no doubt that you remember the stories she helped shepherd. Joey and Dorian's fling, uh, the Gannon brothers' feud, Marty Saybrook's gang rape, Asa and Alex's Egyptian wedding extravaganza, Vicky's shattered psyche, uh, the momentous arrival in Landview of dashing Patrick Thornhart, and, of course, the revelation, the shocking revelation, that Todd Manning was really Victor Lord's long-lost heir. She was a member of One Life's Emmy-winning writing team in the early 90s, and she was that show's executive producer from 1994 to 1996. And if you ask me, she was instrumental in guiding the show to creative heights and absolutely no question ratings heights that it has not seen since her departure. The day the One Life cancellation was handed down a couple weeks ago, I Googled Susan's name and managed to find her website and shoot her an email, and she wrote back almost immediately, I mean almost within 15 minutes, saying that she would love to come on this show and reminisce about the glory days. You know, when she was dismissed by ABC in August of 1996, following a very rocky summer for One Life, uh, she more or less disappeared from the soap scene never to return. And what I was looking for from Susan when I emailed her that day was basically the exit interview that she never managed to give back then. And as you're about to hear, boy, did I ever get it. <laughs> so I, I tell you what, let's, uh, let's, let's set the table here. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Let's get that stuff out of the way. Born in Chicago, Illinois. Moved from there when I was four. Um, raised in 
uh, New York and environs, Putnam Valley around there. Went to college in California, went to UC Irvine as a drama major, was a, wow. and I was a professional actress for 10 years on Broadway where I met my husband over 30 years ago. Well, wait, 35 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> uh, we're about to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary, so it's wow. definitely... And I did a lot of classical theater, American Shakespeare Festival and stuff like that. And then I decided that I really wanted a little more kind of control in my life and I wanted to go into television production and I chose soap operas. And the first job I ever got, this was in 1976, was as the production secretary for One Life to Live. Wow. Unbelievable. But I was there for only about... Doris Quinlan was the executive producer at that time. That's when I first met Erica Slazak, and sure. we have been very good friends since then. And then I went to Guiding Light. I was hired on Guiding Light as an assistant producer because it, went, it was going to the hour in October of 1977. You know, I got into soaps at just the time that they were expanding. Sure. When I was on One Life, um, we were 45 minutes and children were 45 minutes, and we split the hour and a half is really odd to be saying now and we also shared the same studio so guiding light went to an hour and this is just very good timing for somebody like me because the shows were expanding at that time as opposed to what we're seeing now and so, just starting um, to get hot yeah you know this is the time when the abc shows began to they took over and it happened because roots was on in prime time and back in those days we didn't have remotes and often the station was on in the daytime onto what it was watching at night. <laughs> and Roots was so popular that that's it brought hilarious. all this audience over to ABC, and that's when everything turned for GH and children and One Life. You know, I, I never I never put it together, but you're exactly right. Wow. So, so then I was on Guiding Light. I was an assistant producer for not long, like six months, and then became associate producer. So then I was working, you know, for P&G. And at that time, the associate producer for As the World Turns herniated a disc in his back, and the executive producer of World Turns at that point was Fred Bartholomew. So they decided that I would sort of do both jobs while he was recuperating. <laughs> so Fred said to me the first day I was there, I have designs on your body. And I said, excuse me? And he said, you're not going back to Guiding Light. And I didn't go back to Guiding Light. <laughs> I stayed on As the World Turns, and he was such a mentor of mine, and such a uh, he adored me, and he promoted me at every opportunity. So he he made me a producer shortly after that, and he had me coming to story conferences, which at the time producers didn't. He was just he because he believed I had a story sense, and he was just wonderful. And then he was switched. Mary Alice Boonham was doing Search for Tomorrow. He was doing World Turns. They switched them. So I worked at World Turns, but then I was really, I was getting kind of burned out. So I stopped, and they wanted me to investigate writing, and the next thing I knew, they asked me to be head writer of As the World Turns, which wow. I did for a year. We actually married Bob and Kim. That was the major story we did on that show. <laughs> just, it, it, you know, it was so strange the way I was constantly going back and forth between the two. And then when Linda Gottlieb took over One Life to Live, of course my agent you know, said, you have to see her as a writer, and she needed writers. And she sees me and says, no, I want you as a producer. I said, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> so I go, and I'm her senior line producer. And then about a year into that, she said, you know what, I think you should be on the writing team. <laughs> so, 
So I went to the writing team as a breakdown writer. And then that's when they decided that I should take over the show after her. So that was that whole period, and there you are. Wow. I knew none of this. I knew none of this. You know, as I'm telling it to you now, I'm realizing that it was it was very kind of fatalistic. You know, it was just kind of, I, I wasn't doing much. I was just sort of moved from place to place. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's it's funny. I, I can tell you chapter and verse about the last 25 years of one life. And, you know, everything that happened while you were in charge of the show and before and after you. And but to me, you're this funny enigma to me. I mean, you know, I was I was trying to read up on you, and there's not much online about you. I mean, it's it, it's I, I you know I knew none of this about you know you starting at, at uh, one life and going to God. I, I knew none of that. And and you know after you left one life, after your time was over there, you kind of popped right back out, never to return. And so you know it, it's kind of funny how how you just kind of. You popped into our consciousness and then you popped out, and and that's why <laughs> that's why I really wanted to talk to you and was looking forward to to talking to you and getting your insights about all this. Well, you know, I sort of decided to leave the business after my time at One Life, partly because my son was growing up and I was missing his life. You know, as much as I loved my time on One Life, it was you know I, I live in Wilton, Connecticut. It's about an hour more out of the city. So with the commute and the enormous responsibility and hours of that job, I was missing my childhood, and I really decided that I wanted to, you know, not miss this opportunity, my only opportunity. So I really kind of dropped out, and that's when I became a life coach. You know, as we discussed when I first reached out to you, you were involved with One Life in one capacity or another during a very magical time in its run. I mean, you know, the show was kind of coming off the ginormous 80s and, and, you know, having a bit of a rough patch, adjusting to the 90s and the new sensibilities of that decade. And, you know, all of a sudden here comes this film producer, Linda Gottlieb, and, you know, my sense of her, I, I've never met her, but, you know, my sense of her is that she was an extremely classy lady with something of a renegade streak in her, you know, a woman who was hell-bent for leather on shattering the status quo and, and, you know, out to shake things up, and she was not interested in taking any prisoners in pursuit of that goal. And, you know, she brings in a novelist, the great Michael Malone, and, you know, together they and their team basically learned how to create great soap opera. I would love to hear, you know, some stories about the early days of working with them on that show. Well, your characterization of her is absolutely right. She is one of the <laughs> most creative, most fun people that I've ever worked with, but completely fresh, out of the box, and wanted a fresh approach to daytime. And she made it happen. She absolutely made it happen with Michael. By the way, one of the reasons she wanted me to move to the writing team was because she felt that the writing team needed some traditional soap opera writing input. Because she had come to understand that I really understood the soap opera genre from my years of it. And she began to realize that while she wanted to reinvent the wheel, that there was much about the wheel that didn't need to be reinvented. And one of the things I most admire about her was how adaptable she was, how much she wanted to make a difference and then learn what the medium was and had a healthy respect for it, the genre, I mean and really decided to then amend her trailblazing attitudes to fit in with it, which is, I think, why the show was so successful. You know, one of the things she did was she introduced sound effects to the editing. You know, back in those days, you could hear a pin drop in the studio. There were no sound effects. But in life and in movies, there are, and it added such life and richness sure. to the show. And it, the whole thing became a little more real, and also, it took us back to Agnes Nixon's roots in that we were doing trailblazing stories. The whole idea to do Marty and the date rape and then the trial 
that is what won us the Emmy. There is no question. And that was what One Life was always known for. So in that regard, even though she updated, she's, she's like she brought us into, I think she brought us into the 21st century, even though we weren't there yet, because that's how far ahead she was thinking. And yet she upheld the tradition of the show and the genre. I adore her, you know, as you can tell. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, she... Uh, she had quite a few critics along her journey, to be sure. But you know, I mean, the, you know, the the uh, there's no there's no question that she was very instrumental in saving that show, and as you say, in helping update it immensely. I mean, you know, with her, with what she did with the music, with what she did with the casting. I mean, the, the you know the the quirky great actors that she brought in. I mean, it was, you know, what she oh. did with the story. It was just it was an amazing time to be on that show and to be a fan of that show. It was so exciting to be working at that time with her. I wouldn't have missed it. It really, truly, those years on One Life, from when I started with her all the way through to my time being over, was absolutely the highlight of my career. You know, it, it took a good year or so, as you as you referenced, for Michael and Linda's vision to really start to kind of coalesce on screen. And I'm wondering if there was a moment where you guys really started to understand, hey, we're on to something here, or was it a slow evolution? I mean, if I were to wager a guess, I would say that it would have been the story of Megan's lupus and her eventual death. Was it around that time, or was it before... Do you have a sense of, of when it really started to gel for you guys? Well, Megan's death was instrumental to it, but I think it was the beginning of the story with Ryan Philippe as the young boy and Krimmer sure. playing Andrew yes. and Marty. I think that was when the show really began to turn. It's when the show really found its groove. And, of course, Megan was all involved with Andrew, and her death was all part of it. And, of course, she wouldn't have died if Jessica hadn't wanted to leave the show. We would have kept <laughs> Jessica for the rest of eternity. She's so wonderful. But that, I, that was the moment. You know, that crossover was the moment when the show really began to find its new way. And, I mean, I remember that you know, in those scenes, we were using Carmen Burana, for heaven's sake. This is how she had revolutionized the music for us. And it signaled to the audience that we were doing something different in every respect. So talk to me about Emmy Night 1994. Oh, well, it was extraordinary. It was just extraordinary. I mean, I had taken over the show very, very shortly before the nominations came out. And, of course, you know, One Life was rarely nominated for awards. So, of course, the nominations came out, and there were six that year, which is a record, and I don't think it's uh, happened before or since. It was Susan Haskell, Roger Howarth. It was us. Hillary. Hillary. It was Woodsy, and it was, I think, directors as well. I'm not sure. I think there were six. I remember going over across the street to do a breakdown meeting with the writers when Maxine Levinson, who was VP in charge of daytime at the time, and, you know, she started just as I started, and we are still very, very, very close friends. She was terrific to work for and with. She called me in and said, here are the nominations, and it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know. Wow. You just had this sense that we were riding a crest, a wave. You know, the team no was completely unified, and because I had been on the breakdown writing team and working with these guys for a, a year, my being executive producer, they were we were just all completely bonded. They were totally in my corner. I was in their corner because I understood what it was like for them. What you know, so we were just really creatively so completely in sync. And you know, we had a pretty 
good sense that night. We thought it would, there was a pretty good shot that we might win. And, you know, we're sitting in the audience when they read the winners. And, you know, you're shocked and you're surprised. And yet, I don't know, I, there was a sense of destiny about it. There just was. And it was fabulous. And when we looked out, I remember standing on the stage and looking out at all these people that I had worked with. I'd already been working in this genre for 15 years or so. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, people from World Turns and you all bet. these friends of mine. And everybody was beaming at us. Everybody was happy we won. It was like, you know, a, like a small version of when Susan Lucci finally won. You know, it was like <laughs> finally one life was getting some recognition. I, I think that 93 might have been the greatest year in the show's history. I mean, with the gang rate trial and Bo and Nora, Max and Luna, you know, Robin Strasser's triumphant comeback, Vicky and Sloan. I mean, all, all the stars just kind of seem to align. It's so true. It's so true. You know, and then I'll tell you something else that happened around that time, which is the reason that we're having this conversation right now, you and I, is when O.J. Simpson killed his wife. If you remember, at that time, they preempted all the shows for the pre-trial hearing. And this is when daytime took a hit that never recovered from. They were off the air for so long that much of the audience became, frankly, unaddicted and found other sources. They found cable. They used to show us these pie charts, you know, where the network had, you know, three-quarters of the pie and cable had a quarter of the pie, and all of a sudden now cable's got three-quarters and we've got a quarter. <laughs> and I was executive producer at that time, and I just remember thinking, this is terrible that we are now not on the air for this long period of time. And I think it contributed to what we're seeing now. You know, I was going to ask you about this. I had, a, I had a whole section about this later, but you know, since you're since you're going into it now, I'll, I'll definitely go with you. You know, I always thought back then that it was too easy to blame him, and part of me still does. But you know, the prevailing wisdom then and now is that you can divide the history of modern soap opera, and you know, I would define modern as being post Luke and Laura. Y you can divide it pretty cleanly into two sections: before OJ and after OJ. I mean, you know, there, there's probably a, a million reasons why soap ratings fell as precipitously as they did in the immediate wake of that trial, but there's no denying that the ratings did fall, and there's also no denying that that story, the story of O.J. and his wife and his wife's possible lover, I mean, you know, the stakes were high, the details were lurid and fascinating and inescapably compelling, the suspense right. was ratcheted up on almost an hourly basis, and the whole damn thing right. was real, and, you know, the 90-plus million people who watched that verdict come down didn't have a clue right up until the last millisecond how that story was going to end. And, you know... Right. Was it just as simple as people in the immediate wake of all of that not being able to or, you know, being interested in sliding back into, you know, gee, I wonder if Dorian will get there in time to stop Kelly from losing her virginity to David. I mean, you know, was it is it just that simple or is it, I mean, what's your sense? My sense is that had that not happened, had we not actually witnessed a real soap opera, which is what that was, the demise and the erosion of the audience would have happened. It just would have happened probably at a slightly slower rate. I actually think that the fact that it happened and the curiosity about it, and it's interesting, too, when you now consider that, I don't know what the percentage is, but some huge percentage of all television is now reality drama, not fantasy drama, which is a lot of what soap operas are. And so maybe the shift in taste is something that was evolutionary as far as the, the entire audience was concerned. But I do think that this would have happened and would have been inevitable because we just don't have a society where that many people stay home and watch soap operas like we did in the 50s and 
you know, when it was born. With so their children at their knee learning how, to, learning how to pick up the habit. Exactly. So it would have happened eventually, but th- it definitely was a jolt to the system. And at least that's certainly what all the research was telling us at the time when it was going on. So I want to go back to Linda. You know, uh, I've always been curious what first went through your mind when you learned that she was leaving One Life and that you would be succeeding her as the, as the, as the EP. I mean, did you have a sense that she would indeed be leaving when her contract was up, or, or uh, was it a total shock to all involved? I wasn't sure. I didn't know what her thinking was. But, you know, when I first heard about it, it was from her. And she said to me, I am going to be leaving, and I think you should take over. So that's how I first learned of it all. So I, I think that Linda's leaving was definitely her choice. I think she, I think she'd done what she wanted to do, and I don't think she was interested in continuing to work that hard, especially in light of the climate and what was happening to the ratings and the diminishing ratings anyway. I mean, I think it was just, you know, she'd done what she could do. So her leaving was not only all very friendly and wonderful, but she was definitely instrumental in choosing me as her successor. I'm not sure it would have occurred to anybody else if she hadn't planted the seed. <laughs> you know, uh, con- so, considering all the considering all the massive innovations that she introduced to that show, you know, all the acclaim, all the awards, all the ratings. Were you at all nervous about following that? I mean, was there a sense of you know, Jesus, I have to follow this? Actually, no. She had already done the groundbreaking work. It was like someone was handing me a beautiful ship that couldn't be more seaworthy, and we've been through the doldrums and the, you know, and the, all the shows and everything. Now you've got clear sailing. So actually, no. I mean, the show is in such great shape, and I believed so much in everything she was doing. And we were so bonded as a writing team and producing team because of my experience having been on the team with them that I felt we were just going to be fine. I didn't feel daunted at all. I felt ready for the challenge. And you had a storyteller who really got it. And he and I, Michael and I, were completely in sync and compatible in terms of storytelling. I adore him, and we had a wonderful relationship. There weren't fights. There was no. There were no creative differences. We were all on the same page. After you took over as producer, One Life took a strong and unmistakable shift back toward so-called classic soap, and you know, away from the quirky gimmicks and the the short-term arcs, and you know, all of that stuff that that Linda seemed to favor. I mean, was that a was that a conscious choice on your part, or you and Michael working in concert to bring the show back toward a more grounded sense of realism and community? It was my direction, and Michael agreed. Because by this point, Michael had been writing long enough to understand the value of this kind of long, dramatic storytelling. <clears throat> what I wanted was to bring the show... I wanted realistic drama. I wanted always to have drama that was moving and evocative, but I wanted more romance and I wanted more traditional soap opera feel, particularly in the area of romance, because that's really what I believe our audience wanted. Sure. Your, your, tenure, your, your tenure at One Life was dominated by two big stories, and I want to ask you about both of them, obviously. Uh, uh, the first one was the riveting re-exploration of Vicky's shattered psyche, which you know we would learn was even more splintered than we had previously been brought to believe. Uh, yeah. uh, talk to me about, you know, I mean, you've got someone on your bench like the peerless Erica Slazak, who could not only bring to life such a complex, you know, fanciful tale, but also make it so invaluably credible, so real. Uh, was that story just a no-brainer, given her immense talent? 
Yes, it was. But the reason that we wanted to do the story, and I really wanted to do the story, was I knew that the split personality thing, that the Nikki Vicky stuff that they had done for so long was really, really popular. And I also know that this is a very real disease and that it is usually brought about by child abuse and that it's usually more than one personality. It's multiple personalities. So I really wanted to give her an opportunity to flesh out this character and to give some reality to the Vicky Nikki stuff. So one of the first things that Michael and I had to do was go out to lunch with Agnes Nixon. We went to Cafe Des Artistes, which is not there anymore, and say, you know, how do you feel about our saying that Victor Lord abused Vicky when she was a child, you know? And Agnes said, sure, great, go for it. She was wonderful. And she actually consulted with us and advised us as we were putting together that story, which was pretty wonderful to work with her, however briefly. You know, it was about deepening the character of Erica and the reality of this disease, plus having the fun, you know, and plus pitting her against Dorian. You know, we were always trying the balance of the fun in soap operas, what we love about soap operas, and something real and dramatic. And, of course, Erica just went to town, as you know, with this. Gene and all, you know all the different characters. She was just and you know, Tommy remarkable. and Princess and Tori. Yeah, absolutely, yes. absolutely. She was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. What she, her range. Uh, the other big story was the risky decision to transition Roger Howard's Todd Manning from irredeemable villain to compelling anti-hero. And you know, just before this cancellation was handed down, it was announced that Roger is going to be returning to the show. And I guess I don't know, late spring or early summer. Do you remember when you guys really understood exactly what you had in Todd and in Roger? Well, actually, listen, the funny thing is, as a breakdown writer, I wrote the breakdown that had his first scene. This is this is a funny story, Brandon, and you'll like this. That had his the kids, the rapists, first scene in Roadies. So when you are writing a bunch of under fives, they were under fives. You name them. So I named him Todd Manning, and I don't know why. I picked a name that, you know... And suddenly, somewhere along the line, we went, hmm, his name is Manning, Irene Manning, Victor Lord. Basically what happened, I mean, just to go back a little bit, Roger was so magnificent in this part that was never intended to be a major part. He was a functionary. He was so magnificent. Of course, Michael's writing these scenes. You know, he's the rapist, and he's in jail, and he starts to talk about his father. And you suddenly start to have sympathy for him, because this is the way Michael Malone writes. And suddenly we thought, well, my God, if we're trying to keep him on the show and keep this wonderful actor and trying to make this complicated character workable for us, what if he's related to Vicky? So that's what we did. And it was simply because... By dumb luck, I had named him Todd Manning. <laughs> that is hilarious. So, well, it goes along with the feeling that we were charmed at that time. You know, <laughs> I, talk I, about, know, yeah, God, I was about to God, say, talk God, about fate working in your corner completely. Yeah, God must have turned the channel and said, let's work on this show for a while. Um, but then, you know, Roger was having a really hard time playing this character and, and are trying to rehabilitate this character. And he was going through a tough time in his life. And he wanted off the show. So we let him go. We had no choice. But I knew, Michael and I talked about this, you know, we have got to, we have to bring in something to distract the audience from losing him. 
And that's how Patrick Thornhart was created. Maxine had gotten this tape from our casting director in L.A. of this actor, and she said to us, Okay, I'm sending it over to your office. I'm going to give it to you first. Because, you know, we never got it. Children got everything first. One life is always the second cousin. She said, I'm going to give it to you first. You guys look at this tape. I'll have breakfast with you at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. And if you can pitch me a story at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for the use of this guy, you can have him. Wow. So we sat down, Michael and I, in my office. We looked at it. We said, oh, my God, we want him. I had just been to Ireland for the first time in my life on a vacation with my husband, who is Irish. I fell in love with Ireland. He sounded Irish to me. He isn't. He's English and German, but he sounded Irish. And so we said, let's do it. And we literally created this story. We had dinner. We stayed up until I don't know how long, created this story. And we had breakfast with Maxine the next morning. We said, here's the story. You know, and Michael said the first scene is he's on the run from somebody. He sits down next to Marty, who's, you know, gone to clear her head in the Irish, you know, islands. And he says, kiss me. It's a matter of life and death. I mean, that was, Michael just came up with that first scene. And it sparked the whole story and then the piece of music and the whole thing. Anyway. And Brown Penny. So then, yes. Oh, Penny, Brown Penny. That was Jean Passanante and it was her breakdown and she put the poem in. Then Roger, you know, wanted to come back. So, of course, you know, Roger was shot on the show, but the bullet was intended for Patrick in the story. But, of course, you know, in soap opera, being shot doesn't mean anything. (laughs) So we were able to bring him back, and then we were able to have the best of all of it, which was great, to have the two of them together. It was really wonderful. You know, uh, I had a great writer, Pam Long, in here, and she she was head writer for One Life after you left uh, for a short time, and... You know, she talk, and I don't want to badmouth anybody, but she talked to me a little bit about you know working with Roger and you know kind of dealing with him, and and she said that he constantly fought her in terms of you know finding finding light in Todd and and you know bringing him to a place where he he could be loved and he could you know be accepted as a member of this society, and and I my sense is that you had. Similar conversations with him and similar, similar I don't know, battles isn't quite the right word, but similar issues with him in terms of riding Todd in the way that you guys wanted to ride Todd once he was redeemed, quote-unquote. You know, my feeling always was, having been an actor and having been married to an actor, an actor who had done a lot of soap opera, I understand what it's like when you play a character day in, day out. And in this medium, it's very different than other mediums. You know, you can become fused with the character. People see you. You have an exposure to your audience that you don't have in any other form. I mean, people, my husband unfortunately played a villain on The Doctors years ago. And, you know, people would grab him in the street and say, I hate you, you know, and it was very upsetting to him. So I was very sympathetic to his concerns, and we would argue creatively about how to do this in a way that could make us both happy. And, you know, he was never really happy, but he appreciated the fact that I was respectful of his concerns and his wishes. And, by the way, so was Michael. Michael never fought him. Every time he had an objection and we had to deal with it, it made the story better. So it really is, you know, it's how you want to approach it. Because in this, it's such a, it's, it's even more of a collaborative medium than most others in this regard. 
And, you know, to be fair, I mean, the, the story at the time was that Roger was getting, you know, personal fan letters saying things like, rape me, Todd, and, you know, stuff of that nature. And so, you know, it's, yeah. it's not difficult to understand how he could be freaked out by that. It was distressing for him. There was no question. I don't know what happened after I left, but we worked very hard at trying to redeem him slowly and to not in any way have the feeling that rape is acceptable or romantic or any of the notions that come along with it. And I think that even though Roger had difficulty, he respected the fact that we tried to really do it. And I don't know what happened afterwards. And then he went on and, of course, you know, got to play the son of my dear, dear, dear friend Colleen Zink on As the World Turns. You bet. And playing a different character, he had no difficulty. You mentioned the the work between between uh, Erica and Roger, and you know, especially in those early days between Vicky and Todd, the sparks and the chemistry. You know, when they were just beginning to know each other and you know bond over their their common experience as being you know mentally damaged children of a monster. I, I'll never forget those scenes right before Todd and Blair got married the first time when Vicky found Todd in the Lord Mausoleum and you know tried to convince him that he was worthy of this happiness and you know he was worthy of this life that he was scratching and clawing to create for himself against his own base instincts i mean you know that was such it was such electrifying television and of course michael wrote that stuff like it was living breathing literature i mean he, you know he and his team just wrote the hell out of those scenes no question and in fact those are the examples that we're talking about where we tried to give roger the chance to play the conflict that he was having as an actor and give Vicky a chance to try to heal this guy. So this was all in response to the difficulty, and of course that's what Michael is brilliant at. He's brilliant at the, at the nuance and the subtlety and the many different complicated layers that exist in relationships. And it was so wonderful creatively for us to be able to have Roger and Erica working together. That's why, thank heavens, we named him Manning. <laughs> Talk about seeing the, the, the instant sparks between Roger and Cassie DePiva. I mean, was it always the intention to pair off Todd and Blair, or was it just a case of, you know, seeing the chemistry and immediately deciding to write toward it? You know, I think it was a combination of things. I mean, there was definite chemistry. They're both such wonderful actors. Blair was such a complicated character herself, so we were very attracted to the notion of these two sort of broken souls finding their way with each other. And I think that was part of the appeal for them was that they were both so imperfect that you wanted them to find love, you know. And they worked beautifully together. Cassie's a wonderful actress, and they had tremendous acting chemistry together, and it worked. No question. So ABC's decision to remove Michael as One Life head writer in early 1996, did you support that choice? <laughs> I mean, I, I know that you've said in previous interviews that after Josh left – you were basically co-head writing the show with Michael and, you know, that it, it, it severely compromised your objectivity as the producer. And, you know, I'm just wondering if, given all that, looking back, was that dismissal a massive mistake? Yes, I think it was. I think it was. Um, we were, part of what was going on, of course, was that the numbers were really falling rapidly more rapidly than we'd seen them go down ever before. So, of course, with the pressure from the network around that was very strong. And, you know, and the first thing always is to change either the head writer or the executive sure. producer. You know, that's what goes on. And the feeling was that the show needed a new voice, a different voice. And 
I I didn't really agree, and I and I fought against it as as much as I could, as long as I could. But frankly, it fell on deaf ears, and I wasn't really able to not have this change take effect. And I think what then happened was, then you start producing the show, and I mean that not from an executive point of view, but from the network. You start producing the show, and you're chasing your tail. Oh, that didn't work, so let's try this. Well, that didn't work, so that, you know, instead of actually trying to address Michael's talent toward whatever they thought the dip in the ratings or the slide in the ratings was that was happening. And I still, when I look back, we had so many wonderful characters and relationships at that time. Kevin, Joey, Crystal Chappelle, and Max, and all of that stuff going on. And I frankly think that there was tremendous potential for it to continue and grow. So I did think it was a mistake. And, you know, to be fair, I mean, it wasn't just your numbers that were falling. It was, it, they were falling across the lineup. And I also think that... In the immediate wake of Disney's purchase of ABC in 1995 and, you know, coming into 96, there was a pretty radical shift in the executive suite at ABC Daytime, not only in terms of, you know, personnel, but also in terms of governing mentality. I mean, you know, ABC had long been synonymous with quality in the daytime hours, but in this new post-OJ reality, you know, they were getting incredibly antsy about the state of affairs and beginning to make some very rash moves. And, you know, one on top of another on top of another. Claire Labine was gone at General Hospital all of a sudden. And then they took Felicia Bear off of Children, and then they got rid of Michael Malone off of One Life, you know, kind of boom, boom, boom. And I think as as you referenced, ABC really kind of put themselves behind the eight ball. And they, I think, to, to my eye and to my eye only, they truly set in motion a snowball that evolved into this, you know, slow-moving avalanche that we're just now finally feeling the final ramifications of. I think you're right, and you're, of course, alluding to Disney buying ABC. And you're right, when a major corporation takes a network over, the entire assessment of how this operation runs is based upon, you know, results and ad revenues and ratings, period. And there is not any awareness of the genre and the quality of the genre and maybe give it some time and keep it intact. It's, it's ABC before this was a very trailblazing network. They were the young upstarts. You they were trying all the new stuff. This is why Agnes Nixon was able to do what she was doing. So you're right. The changes were way, way, way up on the top, and they filtered down to us in these regards. You know, what we're hearing now is that the soaps from the network level are micromanaged to within an inch of their lives. And, it, you know, it's probably not fair to compare the two, but I'm just curious about your working relationship with the network brass. I mean, you know, by and large, were you allowed to produce the show that you wanted to produce? Yes. Now, I was very fortunate because I had Maxine, and she and I were completely in sync creatively and artistically. So she was completely in my corner. And Pat was, too. But, you know, when Pat came in, she had all three shows, and we had sliding numbers, you know, and uh, her mandate obviously had to do with the numbers. But she was pretty good about leaving me alone. I mean, they really did. They took my vision, what I wanted to do with the show, which was really to infuse it with as much high romance as I could. That really was what I wanted to do. And they let me go with it. They really did. And then eventually they believed that that wasn't working. So let's try to change that. 
and so you know they started with Michael and then me, and you know there you go. This weekend, while I was preparing for this interview and you know deciding what exactly I wanted to wanted to talk to you about and ask you about, I was I just happened to listen to an interview that Charlie Rose did several years ago with uh, Howard Stringer, who is the CEO of Sony now, and who was at one time the president of CBS News and later the CBS Network, you know, in the mid '90s. And he was talking about his time doing the evening news, and he said that it was probably the happiest time of his entire career, but that he also had a very keen sense of the changes that were coming in terms of you know the advent of cable and the the uh the multiplicity of channels and options and the fragmentation of the entertainment industry as a whole and the direct quote that grabbed me was was this he said you know, he said i felt as though i was there at the golden time but golden times were leaving and i immediately thought of you because you know you were there for the last great zenith in terms of commercial success for daytime drama and i wonder if if you know even then you could see the changes that were coming on the horizon in terms of you know technological shifts cultural and sociological shifts. Could you see what was coming down the pike? Oh, yes, absolutely. It was like being on a moving walkway in the airport. We were going toward it, whether we liked it or not. And the feeling that we could stop it or hold it or fix it or change it, it had a life of its own. It was shifting. You know, Brandon, I can remember back when I was an associate producer on Guiding Light and at budget meetings in Cincinnati and the P&G guys, and so I'm talking the late 70s, right? They're yeah. saying as soon as the profit margin catches up with the cost of the shows, we're out of the business. <laughs> so even then, we knew that this was an expensive medium and that the audience was beginning to dwindle even then. And back in the heyday, the audience watched an average of two and a half times a week. This is really important to understand, that in its heyday, they watched an average of two and a half times a week, which meant you had to tell the stories with that awareness. You couldn't leave the audience out. So it was clear that this was happening. It's just that suddenly it seemed as if it began to escalate. And that's the feeling, I think, about what happened with O.J., we were suddenly tumbling faster than we thought. And now I feel with the cancellation now that this has happened sooner than I expected. We all knew it was going to happen sure. at some point, but, you know, we all thought, well, they've got more years in them. ABC's shows are going to stay because they're owned by the network and there is no middleman. And they've, no, got, soap net to, they've got soap net to split yeah. the cost between. Yeah, and, you know, so, you, you add yes. in DVRs and, and, you know, even, I mean, nowadays you can't even find a VCR in stores. And in your time, that's all people had. And, you know, the Internet right. was a, just a pipe dream, you know, not so very long ago. And all of a sudden there's all this new, you know, this newfangled stuff stealing everybody's attention. It's it's pretty incredible how, how fast everything has changed. It's true. As you say, culturally and, and societally and technologically, the change has been globally, in every respect, the change has been so fast that this is an inevitable outcrop. But I must say, it felt like in my years in daytime, and I did 20 years in daytime, it felt like I was started at normal speed and started to slowly <laughs> ramp up into fast motion by the end. You know, when you see someone like, like Nathan Fillion, who was your young romantic lead, taking primetime by storm. I love or... Nathan, my darling <laughs> Nathan. When you see someone like Gina Tonioni, who's had massive success in daytime and, and who could be a movie star right this minute if she chose to be, you know, when you see someone like Torsten Kay or you mentioned Crystal Chappelle, Tuck Watkins, I mean, I can only imagine that you beam when you see these people and what they've gone on to achieve in their careers. 
Oh, my God, I totally do. There is no question. And all of them. I adored working with all of them. They couldn't have been more wonderful. And I rent Castle on Netflix <laughs> because, you know, I just love Nathan and I want to, you know, I love to see them in all the things they do. It's, you know, I feel like a mama hen, you know, when I see them. And, you know, um, what's funny is we all knew back then that Nathan was going to be a huge star. I mean, he just had that star-kissed thing about him. He had a, he, almost a halo around his head. He was so, you know, brightly charged. There was no question. He was touched with magic. You knew he was going to go on and do something great, and I'm glad he did. And, you know, I saw him on The View, and he was there promoting Castle, obviously, but he spent sure. most of the time talking about having been next door <laughs> to One Life Studio, telling stories about Bobby Woods, and then went on to, you cannot imagine what a learning ground working on soap operas is for an actor. And he went on to talk about how wonderful the genre is, the medium is, how much it meant to him. He will never forget it. I was so, I start, I was in a waiting room at a doctor's office. I started to tear up. It was just wonderful. So I'm very, very happy for all of their success, all of them. So, uh, having been on both sides of the fence as a writer and a producer in this genre, what is in your view, the ideal relationship between the two poles? The ideal relationship is when the two are in tandem, have respect for the challenges that each other has, and they approach the problems. Because, you know, daytime or soap operas as we know them are an animal onto themselves. They have specific problems attached to them that have to inform the creative decisions that you make about the show. Like, for instance, set standing and actors on vacation and, sure. you know, actors' guarantees you and bet. all of that stuff. If a producer and a writer, if the writers understand the producer's problems and the producer understands the writer's problems, then they can put their heads together and solve them in a way that makes everybody happy. We never went over budget when the show was under my leadership. I knew how to budget properly and economically, and it's all easy to do if you decide that you want to come from a point of view of solving a problem rather than you know, creating a problem. You, you talk about coming in under budget, and yet you pulled off some amazing stunts. I mean, when I think about Alex and Ace's wedding in Central Park or the whole Irish thing, I mean, you, you, know, you pulled off some amazing things with, with what you had to work with. Well, again, you know, when you work with your designers and your crew and you tell them creatively what you want, and you say, and they, they, they're very aware of what the financial constraints are, they will turn cartwheels to give it to you. They can sometimes come back and say, look, this is going to cost a million, this is going to cost 500 Oh, okay, well, and then again, you compromise there as well. You find a way. Sure. I was very fortunate, you know, in that everyone on the crew and the designers and the staff, everybody was so behind what we were doing that they wanted to make it work. So everybody was collaborative, and I listened to everybody's points of view because that's the way I like to do things, and everyone felt included, and we really, really were a team, and that's one of the things I'm proudest of. So ultimately, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, when you reflect back, do you, do you, um, do you measure your tenure at One Life to Live as a success or a failure? Uh, totally as a success. Are there things I wish I'd done differently? Sure. In the coaching world, the acronym that we use for fail is from all I learn. <laughs> so 
you know, in my opinion, there is no failure. And anything we attempted that we thought would be great artistically and maybe wasn't as great as we wanted, that to me, that's all noble because sure. we were trying. I see it as a, the time that I was there as a very successful time at a very seminal time in you the bet. form itself. What are you proudest of? I'm proudest of my working relationship with everybody on the show. It was artistically and creatively and practically so enriching, so gratifying, so much fun, with so much love, all of us, that I've just, I've never experienced, and I've been in, you know, I, in the theater as an actor, you know, you bond with the people that you're in a show with, and I was in a Broadway show for over a year. You, you make some tight friendships, but I never had such a large extended family of people all pulling for the same goal as I did on that show, and that is, that's the biggest takeaway I have from it. So is there life after soaps? <laughs> sure. There's, um, you know, attempting to write pilots for for prime time, which is very difficult, but fun in the process. Life coaching is great. My son's a sophomore at UMass Amherst, so he's launched and doing well. And uh, there definitely is life after soaps. There's no question. And, of course, the other thing, too, is that Tom and I, we joke about this, because when you have worked on a soap opera, you are, if nothing else, fast. We are so Fast. Fast and facile. Um, yes, exactly. Fast and facile. <laughs> Absolutely. The producer says, well, you know, you want to do great. What do you want? We'll give you five different ways. Damn Thanks. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, working in that form is something that has affected my life in every way, and it's made me stronger and better and creatively more, you know, fast and facile, just as you said. And it's a form that exists in prime time. Let's face it. I mean, it, the continuing romantic drama is there in everything we see. So no it lives on in, in other ways. You know, Grey's Anatomy is a soap. The Good Wife is a soap. Glee is a soap. Sure. I mean, it's Absolutely. So were you ever tempted to dive back into that lion's den? Did you ever have the itch to, to go back and, and take another stab at it? Not really. Not really. And nobody was also, frankly, knocking down the door. So, you know, I, but, you know, I don't know what I would have done had they knocked at the door for something, you know. The, the problem is that, for me, I think I felt that having had this incredible experience of being on this show at its height and then taking it over and being able to really do with the show what I wanted, I couldn't imagine ever doing anything less than that. And so short of being another executive producer, which no one was asking me to do, by the way, <laughs> I would have been reluctant anyway because I wanted to, you know, be here for my son. So I think it all worked out exactly as it is supposed to have. <laughs> you know, I don't want to talk your ear off the whole damn day, and I've already taken up uh, a great measure of your time, but I would love to hear about Get a Life with Susie. Well, I'll certainly do that as quickly as I can. And I'm about to start, actually, I'm writing a memoir as well, and I'm about to start blogging. The title of the memoir is called Making Peace with Potato Chips, and the blog will be of the same name. Fabulous. Um, it's sort of a my journey with food and my mother, and let's face it, as many of us you know, have had these similar journeys. But life coaching is a very, very powerful form of work. It's not therapy. It's very action-oriented. 
it's basically what do you want, how do you want to get there, and how do you want to deal with the things that are standing in the way. And I always wanted to help people, and even my style as an executive producer was one. I mean, Roger Howarth told a story. They were doing a remote up here, and uh, I went over to say hi, and he was telling all the actors about how he came in to tell me that he would like to be off the show. And he said most executive producers would say, absolutely not get out of the office. He said she went and said, I think you need help, and let me get you some names of people to talk to. <laughs> So, you know, I, I always had this inclination of wanting to help people, and I found this really powerful work, and I decided it was really for me. And I got trained and certified, and I did a year-long leadership program, and I've been doing it now for six years. I've got a great, great group of clients. And I just love being able to help people really make their lives great, you know, get the stuff out of the way and move forward with what they really want to be doing in their lives. It's very gratifying. Can you tell me, like, specifics of what you – I mean, are, are we talking about, like, uh, Tony Robbins-type stuff here, or what are, we, what are we talking about specifically? It's one-on-one, -on -one, talking on the telephone with me, half-hour sessions once a week. And it's very much like a sports coach in this regard, only it's okay. for your whole life. You know, it's like having someone in your corner – but having someone who's also observing your game and pointing out to you the areas where you could be better on your game. But it's basically one-on-one -on -one discussions. And then at the end of the session, there are usually assignments and, you know, the clients go away and they have homework assignments to do the things that they wanted to do, but they kept not doing it, you know, because of procrastination or whatever. Yeah. And so the accountability factor is high. But it's I'm not in I'm not in the Tony Robbins. That's a different thing altogether. Okay. That, that's another sort of approach to personal growth. This is a more daily, weekly, ongoing, just like soap operas, um, <laughs> form of communication. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, go figure. You know that allows people to evolve naturally and to have someone you know helping them do it to check in with each week. So I guess people come to you with different problems in terms of say, I don't like my job, or I can't find a job, or, you know, is my uh, my boyfriend or husband or whatever. I mean, I, I assume that people come to you with specific problems, and you, you know, you talk them, you talk them through it together based on what their problem is. Yes, and, and mostly it happens from my actually asking them the questions that help gotcha. them uncover what it is they want. Um, a lot of times with people who come to coaching, it's because they are stuck. In, in one regard or another. And once you learn how to really ask the right questions, you can begin to help people reveal themselves to themselves so that they can start making the decisions they really want to make in their lives. And it's really very, as I said, gratifying. Well, I tell you what, I, I thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Like I said, I, I'm fascinated by you, and I'm a big fan of, of your work, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed this. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. Thank you, Brandon. I'll tell you, I, it's just lovely to be given an interview like this with someone who is as articulate and informed and intelligent as you are. So it was my pleasure, believe me. And I'll tell you, I can't tell you how much I thank Susie Betzel-Horgan for popping in here and taking, taking a trip down memory lane with me. If you're interested in, in, in uh, learning more about her life coaching endeavors, you can find her website at all one word, get a life with Susie. Get a life with Susie, all one word, dot com. 
uh, and by all means, check her out. There's some very interesting reading material over there. Uh, as for me, that's it. Brandon's Buzz comes to a close one more time. If you're listening, you already know how to find the show, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com, B-L-O-G-T-A-L-K radio.com is home base for this show. It's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Uh, that's where you can listen to the show. You can check out old episodes of the show. You can see what's coming up on the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It really is mission control for Brandon's Buzz. And again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at Brandon's Buzz. My blog at the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com is a blue button marked radio. You click that button. That takes you to a full page with every episode of this show all in one place. There are 80. This is episode number 80. This and all previous 79 all available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. Please check that out. Uh, you can also find me at iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo from there. You can download individual old episodes of the show as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing. Or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm all over the I'm – on, I'm, on, I'm everywhere. I'm on iTunes. I'm on Twitter. I am on Facebook. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I swear to you, something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show. And you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So <laughs> if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it Better when you live on a street of dreams Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.